Now we come to chapter 3. And when we come to chapter 3, we find that this man adopts a certain philosophy of life. And it's known as fatalism. This was common among the Greeks later on. It's been common among pagans. Buddhism is a fatalistic system. Platonism was. And we find that today that there are certain cults. I won't call them by name, that actually it's fatalism. You gather sometimes the impression that they have a glorious faith in God, but it's fatalism, actually, and not really faith in God. And we find now in chapter 3 that we have here this system, seeking satisfaction in fatalism. Now, if you want to see fatalism at work today, and I've seen this now several times, Friday afternoon. I now bring many conferences to a conclusion on Thursday night rather than go through Friday night since it's become what actually Saturday night used to be in my day as a boy. And I get on a plane in some city, and I find myself on a plane that's almost totally 100% male. Who are they? Well, they are married men for the most part that are salesmen, or they are representatives of certain companies in certain place. Their families live here in Southern California. And every Friday they get on a plane to come home. You look at those men there, most of them are tired. They show the effect of a week's work upon their faces. Many of them that are carrying briefcases will open them up and begin to probably work out a final report a hand in at the office when they get in, if they get in in time, or they'll probably put it in the mail when they get home. And it'll be there for the president of the company to see on Monday. And there is, in that group, they take their drinks, they have their cocktails, they begin to laugh. It's the liquor that's laughing, of course. And you sense this. And every now and then, if I sit by one of them and there's an exchange of conversation, of viewpoints, I find out that they all have a fatalistic viewpoint of life. I came home on a plane that we went through some very rough weather, and the man next to me looked like he was not frightened at all. And I said to him, I said, you didn't seem to be frightened when we went through that bad weather. No, he says, no use being Frightened, he says, what's going to be will be. You can't change it. And if it's time for your number to come up, it'll come up. So there's nothing you can do about it. And there he sat, gritted his teeth with a philosophy of life today that's very popular. It's called many things, but the name of it is fatalism. A fatalistic viewpoint of life. A great many people face life like that. They get bruised and hurt. They get in a bad spot, and they turn it off, and they turn life off by saying, well, this just is something that was coming. My number came up. Well, that's not the solution at all to the problems of life. Now, we're going to see that this man adopted that type of viewpoint, and it didn't work for Solomon. And by the way, it won't work for you either. Now, friends, we're seeing that Solomon is 
making here another experiment in life. He's trying everything. He's pulled out all the stops and trying everything that is under the sun. That is, that's man-made, that men attempt to do to see if they won't bring satisfaction in life. Now, fatalism is a viewpoint of life. It is a viewpoint that grits your teeth and It's not a very helpful or comforting viewpoint, but it does enable man to face life and recognize that it's rugged, it's hard, and they say, well, if you're going to get on an airplane and it goes down, well, that's the way it was to be. You couldn't keep from it, so why not get on board and grit your teeth and go on? And that's the way that this sort of thing works in the lives of these men. And let me read now some verses here that reveal this attitude that you are to just take whatever comes now. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now, that is the viewpoint as it is expressed. Great many say, take life as it comes. There is a time to get and a time to lose. So you put up so much money and played the stock market. And you lost. Well, that's the way it was to be. There's a time to win, a time to lose. And you were a traveling man away from home, and this woman, she was easy to get, and you invited her up to your room. Well, after all, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Something came along, I see nothing wrong in that. That's the philosophy of life today. It's fatalism. It's looking at life like that. It's the philosophy of Buddhism. It is the philosophy, actually, of Platonism. And it is the philosophy of several of the cults today, which I won't name, but that's their philosophy. That is expressed in these words here. Now, let's move on here. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? What's the use? Why fight it? If you can't fight City Hall, then join them. You hear these cliches banded about among men, especially godless men in the business world. This is the way they operate. Many of them make money on this basis. None of them are happy men. They're filled with joy. They're difficult, I think, to live with. I imagine their wives have a real problem. And they're never rejoicing. They have the cocktail of evening. They become sociable for about two or three hours. After that, it's better to stay clear of them. 
That is the mood of America today, fatalism. That is the way that many people face life. That's the way they look at it. Now, verse 10, I've seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of man to be exercised in. And I look about me, this man says, and I see people in trouble everywhere. And so if I've escaped a little of it, I just consider myself lucky. That's all. Now, he goes on, verse 11, "...he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end." Now, God has let man put the world in his heart, that he might see that there's still room for something else and that the world can never fill his heart here. And a great many men start out, that's the philosophy, I'm going to get all that I can, life is an orange, and I'm going to squeeze it for all it's worth, and I'll get all that I can. Now, Solomon got the big half of it. He said it didn't satisfy him at all. Now, let's move on. I know that there's no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. Oh, and there's another group in this crowd, the do-gooders. And said to me on the plane, well, he says, I think a man ought to do the best he can, do good. He says, that's what I try to do. <laughs> and I tell you, that fellow wasn't doing very much good, but that was his philosophy of life. Verse 13, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's the gift of God. <laughs> and this fellow said, well, I see nothing wrong in drinking. See, nothing wrong in this at all. And from his viewpoint, there was. And this is fatalism. This is the philosophy of men today. Now he says here in verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. And now they talk about God's will as primary. But you see, with this viewpoint, The man says, well, if I'm elected, I'll be elected. And I just work on that way of living. If it's not God's will for me to be saved, I won't be saved. You see, fatalism leaves no place for the mercy and the grace of God. And fatalism said God does not hear and answer prayer. You see, it's providence, it's grace, and it's mercy. And God's love that makes life exciting and brings joy into it and gives peace to the human heart. Now, we come to another philosophy here, and we call it egoism or egotism. It's excessive love of self, and it actually is the individual self-interest, and that is the summum bonum of life. And some of these people are really... Very good folk, by the way, but they recognize this. Now, will you notice what it says here? That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Now, what he's saying here, all men are wicked. 
actually, you can't trust anybody. That's what he's saying here. And this is a cynical view of the human race, but I have to confess that it is rather accurate viewpoint of the human race. It's true. I was speaking at a conference some time ago in which the director of it, he said, now we want to treat all of you folk that are here as Christian gentlemen and ladies. You know, that's the last thing he should have said or done, because they're not going to act like it, and they didn't act like it at all. Oh, my, how we do that. I had a friend, he's a Christian, he says, a great many people, he says, when they're doing business, that they trust the individual until the individual proves otherwise. And he says that their philosophy is that all men are gentlemen until they prove themselves otherwise. Well, he says, I treat them all as crooks until they prove themselves otherwise. And he was a very successful businessman. Now, that's a cynical viewpoint, but may I say it's reasonably accurate. God has already said all is sin. Now, he goes on in this vein here. I said in mine heart, and this is verse 17, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Now, that's not very encouraging. Now, read verse 19 of chapter 3 here. For that which befalleth the sons of man befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. And go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all return to dust again. Now, I'm sure that you recognize that there are several cults that build on this statement. But you must remember, this is the viewpoint of man under the sun. This is the viewpoint of the man who's living for himself, self-interest, and that the summum bonum of life is to live for yourself, to enjoy life. And that's the reason that men get involved in some good projects. A great many men, they get interested in athletics. Nothing wrong with that. And they give themselves to that. And then there are others that get interested in art, and others in literature, and others in music. And they give themselves to these different things. Now, you can see that this is certainly a very selfish viewpoint. This view does not accept, therefore, the optimist's conclusion. You see, evolution says that man was a beast, but that he now has become a man. Now, egoism or egotism or self-interest says that man is a beast. And this viewpoint causes the individual, you see, to despise others. And it's the thing that produced the caste system in India and the class system in the rest of the world. It's the thing that has built ghettos. 
This is the thing that leads to vanity, that makes a man say, I'm better than that man. And he actually believes that he is. And that, after all, we are all going to one place, and we've all become dust. Now, we're speaking here of the body, and very frankly, here this is a very pessimistic viewpoint. You're just like an animal. When you die, you die. (laughs) And that's it. And I heard a man say, he says, why, man's just like a dog. When you die, you just die. And that's all in the world that life is. Well, that's when a man's living for himself and himself alone. And he's adopted a very selfish, very narrow viewpoint, actually, of life. Or he can stretch that out and become interested in the arts, become interested in these things today, give himself to these things and totally ignore everything else and say, well, after all, why, we are just going to end as a beast, and that is something that, well, makes me want to live for myself right now. And may I say to you, it's that type of teaching, and it's in our schools today. Evolution is actually a form of it, although it says man was a beast, and this says man is a beast. It's just owing about your time periods, and that you're going to die like a beast, You have no soul or spirit at all, and that's the way that this viewpoint looks at life. And as a result, what happens? Well, you come out, friends, with a viewpoint that causes you to live for yourself. Because after all, you're just like an animal, and you watch an animal. I watched a bunch of little kittens the other day, and... Believe me, do you think they had any regard for the other? Why, they played together. Well, when there was something to eat, they didn't mind pushing one little fella out. And the owner of the cats had to feed that little kitten. His brothers and sisters would have let him starve to death and perfectly willing to. Why? Egoism is their philosophy of life, too. And you see the same thing about little birds in the nest. I tell you, each little fella is taking care of himself. That is a viewpoint. Man's an animal. And that's the reason today that man's beginning to react like an animal because he's taught in school. Our schools are teaching that man's an animal. Well, then if you are a brother, then live like an animal. And that's this philosophy of life. Now, will you notice here verse 21? Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Now, What he's saying here is actually man's different from the beast. For the spirit of man goes upward and the beast goes downward because he's just an animal. Wherefore, I perceive that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion, for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? In other words, this life is all. This is indeed A modern teaching, you can call it anything that you want to. It's the only thing that's worthwhile is for man to identify himself with his environment, his works down here, actually with the animal world, and to live like an animal. And, by the way, this is the ancient version of the hippie and yippie philosophy, and it came out of our schools, of course. Now will you notice chapter 4, for it continues this. He says here, 
Verse 1, "...so I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter." Does this sound to you like any political philosophy today? The egotist, he rebels against the establishment. He's opposed to it. And that whatever exists, whatever is the ruling, is always oppressing the poor. And the poor, very frankly, always get a bad deal. That's no question about that. But that they're being oppressed. And here's where your protest movements all begin at this particular juncture. Now we'll listen to him again. He says, Wherefore I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. You've heard that one. I'd rather be dead than alive. I wish I were dead. Better to be read than be dead is just turning it around, looking at it the other way. He rebels against the establishment, and he at the same time wishes that he was dead. Death seems to hold no terror for him whatsoever. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say, Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And here's the other side of the coin. I wish I hadn't been born. It's better for the ones coming along not to be born. Then verse 4, Again I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. And the interesting thing about this is, he protests against the establishment, against the oppressor, against that which is wrong. But what about it? What about the man doing right? What about the man who is trying to? Well, that's no good either. <laughs> You're wasting your time in that field. I tell you, this is really a pessimistic viewpoint of life. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. What does that mean? Is he cannibal? No. It means that Actually, he's not willing to do anything to protect himself, won't work for himself. We have developed quite a society like that today, won't everything given to him. Now, will you notice verse 6? Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Now, very candidly, you get in some good points here. I would say this is a very good point. This man here, of course, he wants to do his own thing. But it's better to have it that way than to have it the other. Verse 7, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. Any way you go, it's wrong. There's no way out. This is the worst kind of pessimism. No wonder that in Berkeley there have been more suicides in that area than in any other place in the country because we've seen the old sower, we've seen it break out with corruption and ooze out this corruption, what's back of it? Well, this philosophy that leads to suicide, all of it, it comes to naught. Verse 8, there is one alone, there is not a second, yet he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor? and bereave my soul of good, 
This is also vanity. Yea, it's a sore travail. And what a picture this is. Why, even if you work for somebody and you've helped them, you're just wasting your time. And he says now two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Now, he's giving reasons why you ought to team up with somebody. And this is the only reason. Why? Well, it's going to be a pretty selfish reason. You knew that. Two's better than one because they have a good reward of their labor. You'll have more by teaming up with someone than you would if you did it by yourself. So that's the reason you should team up. This is the philosophy of life that's known as egotism. Now, as we come in chapter 4 to verse 10, he has made this discovery that if you attempt to just live for yourself, it doesn't mean you can go it alone, that you do need some to help you, some to stand with you. And he made the discovery that you need to team up. And he says in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. That is, you can do many things together that you could not do alone. Verse 10, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. That's the reason it's a good thing if you're going on a hike even, that two of you go on a hike that one would be able to help the other in case of an accident. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. And that is the reason that today it's well to have someone around, someone look in on you. I hear constantly here in Southern California where we have so many retired folk of someone who lives alone and they fall, break a hip, can't get to the telephone, or maybe don't have a telephone. And maybe it's a day later, two days later, that a neighbor looks in on them. It's better that two be together, because if one falls, the other can render help. And then verse 11, again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And I remember as a little boy, I always liked to sleep with my dad in wintertime, because he warmed me up, you see. It's cold, and very frankly, the house we lived in wasn't too warm to begin with, and we slept in a room that was unheated, and it made quite a difference. And there's a poem today. I thought I could put my hand on it. I'd like to give it to you, but I cannot because I can't locate it. It must be with some other papers of mine. But it says that it's best that two go together and that one can warm the other, one can help the other. And that's so important, I think, in life. Now, verse 12, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And by the way, two is company and three is a crowd. Sometimes it's well to have the crowd, especially... If someone comes against you and you're not apt to be even held up today if there's several of you walking along. But one person is certainly the one that is picked out today. I'm told that even in Washington that no woman is permitted to go alone into a public restroom there, that always another must go along with her. 
Well, it's tragic that we live in a day when it's not even safe in the nation's capital and actually in the very building itself to go alone. It's a revelation that in spite of the fact liberals just don't like the term law and order, we do need a little of it today. And there must be a restoration of that. This idea that we are a civilized people, that we've lost our lost nature, and the theologians of long ago were dead wrong, that today we've improved man and he must have liberty. And the liberty that's being exercised today is liberty to hold people up, liberty to mug them, liberty to say obscene things, liberty today to play music that no one wants to hear that has any mind at all. And as a result, why the folk that have liberty to express themselves, but the majority of folk don't have liberty today. They can't walk the streets, and there are certain motels, hotels, that I won't go to because of the music that they put on, and they do nothing to tune it down at 12 o'clock at night because we must have liberty today. And I went to a manager of a hotel, and we had 200 people in his hotel in a tour. And I looked into the place where this music is coming from, and there were not six people sitting on bar stools. That's all it was there. And yet those six people had to have their liberty. And these three fellows, they couldn't sing any more than I can sing. And it's terrible when I tried, and it was terrible when they did it too. And yet 200 people had to be disturbed. So these folk, I would say to about nine in all, could have their liberty. I say something's radically wrong. We've got this matter of liberty misunderstood. Liberty's not license. And after all, you have liberty to swing your fist. Well, where my nose begins, that's where your liberty leaves off. And we need to change these things some. And therefore, you need to have several go with you today anywhere that you go. And I've got so in conference work that my wife goes with me everywhere. I don't like to go alone, and that is something that many of us are finding today. Now, you can't be self-centered in this life, therefore, and find satisfaction in that. To say, I want to be alone may work for a while, but you get very tired of it after a while. Now we read, "...better as a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king." who will no more be admonished. And Solomon was both of them. He was a wise child, and he was a very foolish king. Now, verse 14, "...for out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor." And the reason that we ought to be interested in what happens in Washington and in your state capital is because it's going to affect your living. And today, that's what's making a great many people poor, because politicians are becoming rich, are becoming influential. And as long as people are protesting that, I'll go along with it, because the situation that has arisen in this country of ours, the corruption, is something that is wrecking business and is making a great many people poor, and retired people suffer from it. These are 
tremendous statements that are made here, and it reveals that God is interested in you. He's interested in you as a child, as you mature, as you become an old person, and he's interested in your welfare down here. This, I think, is something that needs to be considered today. Now, we read on here, and I read now, verse 15, "...I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There's no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit." Now, There are two things here that I'd like for you to notice. He says the second child is generally the one, and Solomon was the second child. He was the second child of Bathsheba, and he was not the one that David would have chosen to have been king. And Solomon apparently had noted that, that after all, Isaac was not the first son of Abraham, and that Jacob was not the first son, that God has a way of choosing the seconds. You feel second class today. May I say you're first class with God. Then the second thing to note here is, and I can bring this down to something very practical for us today, sometimes we have a very popular president, and then as time begins to recede from him, we find out what a second-class president he really was. When all the glamour boys get away from him, and the publicity men no longer are heard, and the news meters no longer playing him up, and we begin to see that his time that he was in office did not bring any blessing to the nation, but actually... It was a time of deterioration, a time when the nation began to go down. And so, that's what he's talking about here. Apparently, God wants to give us all just a little consecrated gumption and how we need that today. Now, Solomon tries something else as we come to chapter 5. And this is something that may interest you a great deal. He tries to find satisfaction in religion, and he does not. Now, I'm going to say several things right now that may seem startling to you, but don't reject them until you think about them just a little. Did you know that religion has damned more people in this world than anything else? Look what the pagan religions did for the peoples in the past. Look at the condition of India. It's not because the people have a lower mentality than other people have, but it's religion that has bowed them down. Look at China today. Actually, China, will you hear me very carefully, has been better under communism than it was under those pagan religions of the past. And I'm not advocating communism. It hasn't helped them much at all. It has made them a nation today to be reckoned with. But it's an awful dictatorship. But the important thing to note is that religion did not help it hurt. 
and look at the Muslim world today. Look how it's fractured and look at its condition. Look at South America. South America today is as rich in natural resources as North America is. And frankly, I think in many instances, it has a distinct advantage. But notice what happened. And look what liberalism, liberal Protestantism, and liberal Romanism has done today. May I say to you that this country, when it began to give up belief in God and respect for the Bible, and liberalism came into the pulpit, deterioration began in this nation of ours. My friend, if you got religion... I suggest you get rid of it and exchange it for Christ. Now, I personally do not think you can call Christianity a religion. There's no ritual given, none whatsoever, with Christianity. Have you ever stopped to think that? And that's the reason that you can have all kinds of churches. You can sing the doxology if you want to. There's nothing wrong with it, and there's nothing particularly right about it either, because you're never given a form to go by. Why? Because Christianity is a person, and you either have Christ or you don't have Christ. You either trust Christ or you don't trust Christ. And religion just hasn't been very helpful to man. Now, will you listen to this? This is terrific, by the way. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. What he's going to say is, don't put your foot in your mouth. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Very frankly, to go to some churches, friends, you're not only wasting your time, it's wrong. I think you're wrong to give your approval of a liberal pulpit. And I think you're wrong when you are not giving your support to a fundamental pastor that is giving out the Word of God. And I think God will hold many account. Be religious and go to church? <laughs> well, he says he tried that. He went up to the temple. But have as little to do with it as possible. Keep your mouth shut. Don't do anything. Just go and sit. And if you do say anything, let it be gossip or criticism. Don't, for goodness sakes, commit yourself on anything. Listen to him, verse 2. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God's in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. Do not make any decision under the stress of emotion. Cry at the movies, but don't do it in church. Don't sign a pledge because... You know, we're fundamentalists, just don't think you ought to promise God anything and put it in writing. But if you're going to rent an apartment or a house today, they'll make you sign for that. But that's all right. But don't commit yourself to God. In other words, make it a religion. Go through the form and have no reality whatsoever. That is the thing that Solomon tried and you know there are a lot of unhappy people in church today. They never get involved. It's meaningless to them. They just go through a nice, sweet little ritual, and they try to be very pious in church and that sort of thing. And there's nothing as deadening as that today. 
Now will you listen to him? Verse 3, For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. The thing that he's saying here is that I believe that God can speak to you anywhere. And there's a lot of things being said today in church that ought not to be said. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 4, And this is something that I think is very important. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Don't go forward at an invitation just to make a decision publicly. There's a great deal of that going on today that's quite meaningless. At a service that I conducted recently, I was criticized severely because I would not let young people come forward because it was so obvious that it would be a display if any did come. But yet there were quite a few that made decisions there that night, and I felt it was better to keep them right where they were and let them make the decision right there and then and come to Christ like that. God says, don't you make a vow and then not pay it, not to God. And how many folk have been forward in meetings, and it's meant nothing in the world at all. And then he says, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. When you do business with God, friends, it's real. You just can't go to God and promise him things and then not make good and expect or maintain a vital relationship with God. Oh, I tell you, there is a lot of pious talking today and pious promising, but it's absolutely meaningless because it's never carried out. And God says, if you're going to make a vow, carry it. And did you know God gave a law for that? I would recommend to you a book that happens to be mine, Learning Through Leviticus, Volume 2, and it's chapter 27 there. That's a book that you ought to have. In fact, you ought to have Leviticus. It's a pretty important book in the Bible. And it has to do, chapter 27, with vows. God gave laws concerning vows. When you do business with God, you better mean what you say, because God's going to hold you to it. And I think today that there is many a person that's off of the mission field, many a preacher that's out of the pulpit, many a Christian that's been put on the shelf because he promised God something and he didn't mean it at all, and God just happens to hold you to what you say, my friend. This is not religion when you're dealing with God. You're not going through a ceremony. You're dealing with a person, and that person expects you to make good when you promise him anything. Now, will you notice verse 5? Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hand. God will move in on you. And don't you try to say that you said it in a fit of emotion or that maybe you intended to do it and then found out you couldn't. And you know you could. Oh, my friend, 
We're dealing today with a living God. And a great many people don't seem to know it. And as a result, they stand out yonder on the fringe of things today. Oh, may we mean what we say to God, and may we say something to him. Now, let me read verse 7. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers vanities, that is, all kinds of emptiness. But fear thou God. In other words, dreams and words are no substitute for a personal relationship with God. Uh, somebody says, I've had a dream, or I've had an experience. And may I say to you that an experience is no substitute at all for a study of the Word of God. There are a great many people today that use an experience to even test the Word of God. Instead of using the Word of God to test their experience, the important thing is that all experience should be tested by the Word of God. We are to try the spirits to see whether they are of God or not. And today a great many people go out on the tangent of experience and live there. That's religion. It appeals to the emotion. It appeals to the aesthetic sense. And it dwells upon experience. And does your faith today in Christ rest upon experience, or does it rest upon the naked Word of God? That's very important. Do you have religion, or do you have Christ? Now, verse 8, the last verse here in this section. If thou seest the oppression of the poor, and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter... For he that is higher than the highest regard it, and there be higher than they. Now, today we've heard of a great deal of corruption in the poverty program. Well, I believe that God deals with this type of thing as he does with nothing else. Those that are taking advantage of the poor, those today that are attempting to get rich at the expense of the poor. That, to my judgment, is something that God judges. And the very program that today makes a great many people feel comfortable that we now have become a generous people and we have a poverty program. Well, we also have a lot of corruption today. Now, God will look at that thing. And if you see the corruption and if you're in it, you ought to get out of it. I don't think a Christian can have part in a corrupt poverty program in any way whatsoever, any shape, form, or fashion. And you're to recognize one thing, that if you see the corruption, you can be sure of one thing, God sees the corruption. And God is going to do something about it. He will bring in judgment. And the history of this world rather bears that out. Governments that have attempted to bear down upon the poor, those governments fail. And I think probably the best example, the one that we are more acquainted with than any other, is the French. The French Revolution came. And it wasn't a nice, pretty thing by any means. It was an awful thing. 
Well, I think it was the judgment of God upon the corruption of a nation that a few were living at the expense of the many, of the poor. And that is something God has had so much to say about. There's so much said about that when the Lord Jesus reigns, the poor are going to get a fair deal. They are going to find that there's one that is reigning that really means business when he says that he's going to do something for the poor. There'll be justice and righteousness for them. And I don't think he's going to put them on the dole system. I don't think that he's going to give them out actually food stamps. I think that every person will make his contribution in that day. In the millennium, they'll make their contribution and they will receive justice at his hands. Now, that leads us to this next division that we have here, something that this man pursued is no other man pursued, and that is the pursuit and enjoyment of wealth. Now, Solomon was in a position to do that better than anyone else. He alone was probably the richest man that's ever been on this earth. He cornered the gold market, and the wealth of the world was his. And he could buy anything that he wanted. And he gave himself over to the accumulation of gold. That was the thing that finally brought the downfall of the nation, was that the greed of nations outside, seeing the wealth there, moved in upon them. And then God let down the barrier and... After five years of putting up a wall of protection, that wall crumbled, and God let the nations of the world come in and help themselves. Now, this man tries wealth, and this is what he says in verse 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. And the president of a great corporation that comes to the end of the year and sees a tremendous profit, that actually is not going to satisfy at all. You may have a great bank account. It may offer a certain amount of security to you and satisfaction, but it won't satisfy you. That won't satisfy you at all. It's going to be how you use it. And therefore, what he's saying is simply this, Wealth is not wrong in itself, and Scripture never condemns wealth. It condemns the love of money, and that that's the root of all evil. It's the love, not the money. But the love of money is the root of all evil. And to accumulate wealth for wealth's sake, that's wrong. And the miser thinks dollars are flat so they can be stacked. The spendthrift thinks they're round so they can be rolled, but both are entirely wrong. Man's attitude toward money, that is the thing that has made big business. It's made our system today, the profit system. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. The thing is wrong are the people that are in it. The system is not the thing that's wrong, but the people, because it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And there are several things that we want to say at this particular juncture, I think, that are important. And this section is saying this. The idea today, just to increase money for money's sake, 
just to get rich for riches' sake. And you see men held together, bound together in an arrangement just to make money for money's sake. I was very much interested in hearing a comedian that told about a play they had produced and that he was thanking those that had participated and how they'd all cooperated. My, he was making quite a lovely speech and there was no humor in it. Well, finally, he came to the end and he says, and we have all been held together by one thing. And he paused a moment and then he said, greed. Now, that's the thing that held them together. That's the thing that holds a great many things together today. It's the thing that holds big business together. It's the thing that holds the mafia together. It's the thing today that holds a great many organizations together. And the thing that is wrong is the accumulation of money for money's sake. And I must confess that I believe that it is wrong for one man or one organization to accumulate so much money and that there be so many today that are in poverty and need. And I do believe, though this may sound radical, that something eventually will have to be done. Look at India today. They let the Maharaja, they let him become immensely wealthy, and the people are poverty-stricken. That's wrong. That's entirely wrong. And that is the thing that God condemns. And he condemns it because of the love of the money and the use, therefore, that's made of it. And whether it's accumulated or whether it is rolled like the prodigal today would roll it or the spendthrift, it's entirely wrong. Money is something today. It's power. And it should be used for the glory of God today. And my friend, that's the thing that's wrong with godless capitalism and godless labor, greed, the love of money, and not using money for the glory of God. It would be wonderful if men would make money for the glory of God. It would be wonderful if men labored for money for the glory of God. It would be wonderful if it were put to a right use. And the only cure, of course, for it is to have Christ in the heart. This is a tremendous section of the Word of God. Now, I'm going to hit some high points here now. Verse 11, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? Just to grow for the sake of growth, a business or even a Christian organization or a church is no good at all. I remember when we started out our program my secretary and I did all the work, every bit of it. She received the letters, opened them, and I would read them, and we would talk about them, and we just had a little Mickey Mouse operation on one station, and we'd just get in a few letters each week, and we were thrilled with it. And honestly, it wasn't much of a problem. Now we have expanded. We have quite a crew, and they're wonderful folk. But I found out that just for the sake of increasing is no good at all. It increases your headache. 
It increases your workload. It increases your responsibility. And we're just not doing it for that sake. We want to get the Word of God out to as many people as possible. And that's the thing that I want to keep before me all the time. I thank God, and the Lord had to deal with me, and I tell you, in a rough way, when you let a man have cancer in order to put him down on his back so he'll look up to you and begin to take orders, then may I say to you, I think that you're prepared now to say something. And the thing I want to say is this, this one thing I do, and that's to get the Word of God out. But just to grow for the sake of growing today, and to have a big church for the sake of a big church. I had that for years. Nothing in the world but a headache. That's all in the world that it becomes. And there's no fun in it. There's no joy in it if you're just trying to grow. We're not just trying to grow. We're trying to get the Word of God out. And I have to keep that before me. This one thing I do, Vernon McGee, get the Word of God out. I hope you're my partner in that. Now, let's move along here. He says here, verse 12, "...the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, why, it's sweet." And this is something to be good for this country today. I believe that every man ought to work for what he gets in this life. And he ought to be paid for what he gets and not out of line with everybody else. I tell you, there could be a lot of improvement made. You know, it'd be interesting if they turned it over to me, wouldn't it? I think it probably being just as big a mess it is today. Now, verse 12, "...the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep." You see the difference between the two. The laboring man can only eat so much, and that's all. And if he doesn't have too much to eat, he's not a glutton, therefore, and he probably will sleep lots better by not overeating. But the rich man, he has an abundance. In fact, he has gourmet food all the time, and he gets pretty tired of it. And he has no appetite for it. But believe me, he has to worry about his riches. When we were in the Hawaiian Islands, why, we were permitted to stay in a swanky hotel just because of the fact that we had a large tour, and this chain of hotels permitted us to go there. It didn't cost us anything to stay there. And it didn't cost me anything, at least, to stay there. And the thing that I noted was how unhappy the people were out there to have a good time, and they were always worrying about their things. I had to wait down at the office one day, and you know what? A woman spent, in fact, I left and came back. She spent 30 minutes getting her jewels in a safety deposit box. And when I got up there, this girl says she's been here before, and she'll be down here a dozen times to check on them and take something out to wear, then bring it back. You know, I'm glad my wife doesn't have that kind of a problem. That poor woman had a real problem of having probably, this woman said, probably $100,000 worth of jewelry. Well, glad I don't have it. Riches present a real problem. Maybe that's the reason the Lord didn't let me become rich. Now, will you notice, he says, there is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Actually, riches today don't help a great many people. What a picture that you have here. Now, the poor man 
sometimes happier than the rich man, therefore. However, Paul said he knew how to abound and he knew how to be abased. Very frankly, it's harder, I'm told, to abound than it is to be abased. However, I like to try both. Verse 14, "...but those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there's nothing in his hand." In other words, you accumulate a fortune, leave it to a boy, and he'll run through it. He'll spend it all. But today, men have become pretty wise. They don't leave it to their son. They leave it to a fund or to a trustee or whatever they do, and somebody else doles it out to the boy. And therefore, they're able to keep their riches. And we've got a lot of prominent men today that never made a dime in their lives. And they would not know how to use money. But the reason they stay rich is because of the way the old man left it. And that, to my judgment, is the thing that's becoming a great question today. Now, will you notice, and may I pause to say this, I think that finally... In this nation, the division is not going to be between races. I don't think it'll be black and white, or the minority groups and the white race, or the black. I don't think that's going to be ultimately the problem. The problem's going to finally narrow down to rich and poor. Always has, and I think it always will. That'll be the line of demarcation. And I think some of the rich have sensed that, And that's the reason that so many rich men are liberal today. It's because they've already got their money. You can't touch it. They can use it. And they're willing to bring in liberalism so you can be taxed and you can pay for the programs that are being used today. They do not pay for it at all. Now, that is the real problem. And may I say to you that this man, Solomon, is speaking into that kind of a problem and that these things will not satisfy, nor do we have the solution to the problems of life like this.